Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Hello there. You've just taken your first step into a larger world. But I can't listen to a podcast. I was going to go to Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. I find your lack of faith disturbing. I got a bad feeling about this. That's right. A new episode of Sequel Quest coming to you from a galaxy <laughs> far, far away. And boy, are we ready to get into the action. <laughs> But first, allow me to introduce you to the spacefaring inhabitants of this hive of scum and villainy. Nice. Call him a stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder if you must, but he always shoots first. It's Jeff. It's so true, but boy. <laughs> See, why do you always get to the, like, we always get the crappy definitions, and you get to yourself, and lord of all the universe. <laughs> oh, That's the yeah, power man. of being the introduction man. Oh, <laughs> but... Judge me by my size, do you? I'm Adam. (laughs) Jeremy is off on Dagobah doing his Jedi training, so joining us for this Star Wars spinoff spectacular is a member of the Rebel Alliance without delusions of grandeur. It's Garen. (laughs) Welcome to Sequel Quest. 3PO, where could he be? Hey, I didn't know we were going to get to do our uh, our best uh, Star Wars impression, so I'll have to throw those in as we're doing this. Yeah, oh, work wait, it Adam. in. Adam, those were your best Star Wars impressions? Yeah. Uh, most that Harrison Ford was a little... <laughs> get off yeah. my plane. Oh, wait, wrong movie. But, uh, yeah, so we're excited to be here tonight talking about Star Wars. You know, we did Star Trek for the 50th episode, and now... In the you know as we're gearing up, getting ready for the last Jedi, it's only natural that we should end up here. But Garen is with us because he is the biggest Star Wars fan that I know. We ran across each other and uh, instantly recognized the uh, ways that our nerddom collided. We played <laughs> Magic: The Gathering together. I've looked at his Kenner Star Wars action figure collection, and it's a fantastic display case, which we'll share a picture of that on Twitter, so keep an eye out for that. So his credibility in the fact you've been to Celebration. Just been once. It was terrific. we got to hear your story from that soon. But let's start at the beginning for all of us, because now Star Wars is so ubiquitous. I mean, it just is. It has to, it has to be the most recognizable film of all time. Is right. there any denying that, Jeff? For our generation? <laughs> For any man. generation. I mean, I, I mean, I'm up to the any generation born after, like, 1960. Well, but because the, the crazy thing is, is that, like, sh- that still continues to shock me, is that I work with middle schoolers and high schoolers. How many of them have not seen the original Star Wars? That really surprises me. But it's, That blows it's my lot, mind, too. I know. It's a lot more than you would think. Like, they've seen the prequels, usually, sadly, and that's their Star Wars, which is, you know, it 
<laughs> that's sad if that's your Star Wars. Because we're in such a special effects-driven culture is that there's just a general resistance to old special effects. Mm-hmm. Even though if you ask me, I still think the special effects in the original three movies are superior to anything done today because it looks way more realistic actually doing it with Well, they're real. Yeah, they're practical. There there was a spaceship there. There was a Jabba the Hutt there. I mean, it's amazing. Totally. So, but let's let's talk about that thing, because, Garen, you're a generation... Yeah, so I'm a Gen Xer, and so uh, Star Wars, the original A New Hope, came out actually two days after I was born. And so uh, I cried for two days. That's what my parents tell me. Just kidding. So, you know, I... I can remember the first time I saw Star Wars, not in the theater, but on VHS tape. When I was homesick from school one day, my mom you know, picked it up and said, okay, you're sick. You're going to watch this show. And, you know, I watched it and then watched it another 14 times that same day, I think. And, and it was just, you were just surrounded with it all of the time. Every Christmas memory is getting Star Wars action figures, whether it was the, I remember one year I got the Ewok Village and all of these Return of the Jedi figures, and I still have most of them. My grandma gave me a Return of the Jedi belt buckle. In choir, we sang the classic Ewok song at the end of Return of the Jedi. (laughs) If you'll remember before... Yeah, this was awesome. Before the special edition, of course, there was Yubnub. You guys remember Yubnub, right? And so we'd literally, we'd gone through and (laughs) they had produced this whole song and you learned all the words in Ewok and then you learned all the words in English. And so we were all singing Yubnub, Bisop, Yubnub, Akoni, Kikiwa. I mean, it was this whole thing. And then, um, and then it was freedom. Yubnub means freedom. So then you sing freedom and it's hilarious. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, my whole childhood was just surrounded by Star Wars pop culture references and all of the kids just being in love with the original trilogy so that means you were born in 77 is that right yes 77 uh okay so i was born in 80 so when i was a kid this was still something that you know my parents had watched obviously and so they showed it to me when i was pretty young and this was something that you watched all the time and even by the time i was a teenager it became something that it was almost like almost all of us had this memorized where we could know every single line and it's that fascinating thing when a movie gets to that point where the lines it's almost like the sound of the words that they're making becomes so it's like how else would any human being ever say you know, look, sir, droids. Like, no one would ever say that any different because it's the only way that has been imprinted into our brains. Right. Um, so then for me, like, and that's that, it's that interesting, like we talk about with a lot of these movies, path going through is that that was definitely my childhood. And then as I got more as a teenager and a young adult into movie scores, this is movie scores 101. This is maybe the most brilliant work of movie scores. You could literally mute every single word anyone says and still understand the entire story just from John Williams' score. It's brilliant. Yeah. And, I mean, I even got, you can get the, the special edition two, three discs or whatever it is uh, that literally goes through every movement and every, like, the oboe comes in here to represent this, and then it sort of fades away as the suns rise and blah, 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 blah. And it's just, it's just breathtaking. It really is. I was actually just recently reading, uh, because there's another podcast I listened to called I Read Movies by former guest Paxton Hawley, who is on the Shadow episode. He is reviewing the novelization of Star Wars. 
supposedly hmm. written by George Lucas, but absolutely not. <laughs> if you get yeah, into the details, Alan, Alan Dean Foster. Correct. And so, but I, I went back. I found a copy of the thrift store. I was just reading it, and as I was reading along, I was playing the score from Star Wars in the background as I'm reading through to catch up with that. So, yeah, absolutely, it sets the mood perfectly. Now, for me. Star Wars was literally there also from the moment I was born. When I came to this world, I was kind of squashed and discolored, and my ears were a little pointy, and so was my head, and which caused my dad to say that I looked like Yoda. You know, he had just seen Empire Strikes Back came out two years earlier, Yoda was on the brain, and this literally led to me being referred to as Baby Yoda for the first six months of my life. <laughs> and there's a picture of me around 1984. I'm visiting my brother in the hospital after he got hit by a car. And I'm there to lift his spirits, dressed in a robe and a plastic, you know, Halloween Yoda mask. And my mom's lifting me up over his bed, you know, to cheer him up. And then I eventually ended up wearing, like, the full plastic smock version two years later for my first trick-or-treating outing. So Just like E.T. Yeah, see, exactly. Home. (laughs) But anyway, but it was one of those things where Yoda was there really before Star Wars was there. Like, I got a lot of Yoda merchandise. Like, I had the bubble bath. I had the Kenner action figure, obviously. I had the Magic 8-Ball style fortune teller. That you would like flip underneath, <laughs> and the dice would be in like Yoda speak, you know, certain it is, you know, like it yes. was all that kind of stuff. So, like, yeah, but so it was always Yoda, and I didn't really know Star Wars itself till many years later. Yet, like Jeff just mentioned, the score, my brother was a huge Star Wars fan, and he would drive me around in his yellow VW rabbit blasting the soundtrack, and we'd pretend to be <laughs> X Wing pilots. You'd be like, over there, shoot that TIE fighter. <laughs> You know, and we'd like fly around the streets just pretending we were, you know, in a dogfight. So it was way fun. Plus, he had an Atari 2600, so we played the Empire Strikes Back video game. And I, I love when it would go to light speed, you know, and the R2-D2 sound effects, you know. So, yeah. I mean, like, that was that was really, for me, it was kind of like the essence of Star Wars and then eventually seeing the movies. But I'm curious for you guys, is there a moment, you know, it could be really from any of the films. I mean, I think the three of us probably think of the original trilogy, but there are so many more films to be referenced and think about now. Is there a favorite moment for you guys when you go back and say, you know what, this was the defining moment of Star Wars for me, Garen? You know, the only Star Wars film that I saw as a kid in the theater was Return of the Jedi. And like I said, all the others, they were all out on VHS as you were growing up. But I I think for me, maybe two moments that I I think for me just drew me in when Luke and Obi-Wan walk into the Mos Eisley Cantina, that moment where you just see the depth of all of the different aliens that are introduced. um, I think that really kind of opened up the Star Wars world for me. And then, I mean, to this day, I cannot watch, and A New Hope is probably my favorite out of all of the Star Wars films. I can't watch the trench run and not get the chills every time. So I think that trench run at the end of A New Hope might be my favorite. Oh, nice. How about you, Jeff? Again, it's, man, it's so hard because that's one of the things that the original trilogy does so well is those moments. And uh, I mean, the two that most stand out, I'll, I'll narrow it down to two. But the one, and again, because I'm a sucker for the score, is that moment where it's a very insignificant moment story-wise. But I think, like you said, to kind of capture 
the essence of Star Trek, uh, Star Wars is <laughs> oh, when careful. I did it already. <laughs> is when it's right after the Tashi Station with some power converters scene. <laughs> exactly. And for some reason, then Luke goes up on the hill to go and watch the two suns like set, and the swell right there of. Luke's theme is just like, I get teary-eyed. I mean, even thinking about that moment and the emotion in a seemingly insignificant, like, moment. It's like, who cares? He's looking at the sunset, man. Come on. Let's see some lightsaber battles. But that's not what it's about. All you need to know about Luke is explained right in that moment right there. And then the other one. I agree. I think the score is really strong right there. I mean, that's probably one of the most beautiful pieces of music in all of the trilogies. Yeah, it really is. And then my my other one that I'm always a sucker for is the final part of the final battle between Vader and Luke in Return of the Jedi when he has his whole, you have a twin sister. Sister. The reading that James Earl Jones gives and the like, even how ridiculously slow he says that. Just so, it's so cheesy and over the top, but it just so works. And it just... capstones the entire trilogy for me. <laughs> That's awesome. I go back to a Vader line as well, because, I don't know, like, you, he just lubes so large over the franchise. I mean, it's why you base the prequels on Vader, right? He's that yeah. compelling a character. But for me, I just love the moment because it's that sinister humor that he has. And I, I think it's, it may even be his introduction in Empire where he just says, apology accepted, Captain Nita. <laughs> you know, like, just killed that dude. Like, I just, that to me is so, you're like, oh, okay, I don't want to mess with Vader. I get it. Um, <laughs> but also, the other part for me, I don't know, It's I guess what it does is it, it shows me the lived-in nature of the universe and the way that these are people in space, but they don't speak like aliens. And that's when they go to to Bespin and Han's coming out gonna talk to Lando and he's, you got a lot of guts after what you pulled you know <laughs> what are you doing yeah. you old pirate you know like their interaction is just like really in a space movie a guy this cool and playing jokes you know so I don't, like, hello just... what have we here <laughs> how you doing Chewbacca you still hanging around with this loser oh Billy D. <laughs> We gave him a lot of praise in in an upcoming episode about a a new Burton Batman film, so we won't go too deep into Lando. But uh, Maybe you won't, but (laughs) there might be a Lando. You know, the great thing that George Lucas did that he figured out, aside from creating a universe that people are just endlessly fascinated with every single detail of, is he was smart enough to say, you know what, you know, make my movie, please. But I'm going to hang on to all the merchandising, you know, when other studios had already passed and whoever, they're probably like, fine, we're doing you a favor. Yeah, merchandising, whatever. You want to make some, <laughs> a couple bucks off some toys and T-shirts, it's all yours. Oh, it's the merchandising. Yeah, hey. You were quoting Spaceballs, you know it. <laughs> yogurt, gotta love yogurt. So let me ask, is there a favorite piece of merchandise that you either had as a kid or collected over the years or just one that you've seen where you said, wow, because, I mean, there's so much now. But is there something where you've just said, you know what, this was so much fun or such a clever idea for a Star Wars fan? Garen, is there one for you or a couple for you, probably? 
I, I'm always drawn to kind of the odd ones, but, uh, you know, I just grew up with all of these action figures. You've seen my collection. I've been able to put together a complete set of all of the action figures released from 1977 to 1985. And that for me has just been fun, taking what I had as a kid, keeping those, and then piecing together the rest from Facebook groups and eBay and you know, neighbors that pull out their old junk about to toss it and I go running out there to look through it, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I love the Kenner action figures. They're great. Some of the other, uh, I think, uh, items that I'm fond of. If you'll remember, Burger King did these glasses. You can go to Burger King and get a shake and they would give it to you in a Star Wars glass. Um, I've got a set of those glasses. That, that was really fun. And I love the lunch pails. I just think those old tin Lunch boxes were just awesome, so I've got a I've got a set of those too that I think is really fun. Yeah, I actually I have the Empire Strikes Back with Yoda right there, you know, yep. and the Yoda thermos, you know, so that, that's a great that's a great piece. I mean, just any those metal lunch boxes in general were just always enjoyable for a kid. What about you, Jeff? Is there a piece that you had back in the day or something you've held on to? Uh, I somehow remember having a Luke action figure with i mean maybe it was the return of the jedi hood but it had that little fleece kind of like cloak yeah. uh, but for me the the one and it's a little bit uh, on a separate note but like one of the things that i really enjoyed was they came out with two video games the force awakens and the force awakens 2 where you play as darth vader's apprentice and one of the things that I love about Star Wars is the heroic moments that they give Luke. They don't do it as well in the prequels or in the new movies, but like the moment I always remember, like the moment where he zip lines onto that ATAT walker and then chucks a grenade in and blows it up by himself. Like that's a heroic individual hero thing to do. And that was the neat thing about those video games. Like at one point you end up turning away from the Empire, and you use the Force to drag a Star Destroyer out of space and crash it into the planet. And <laughs> feeling like I got to do that through a video game was really, yeah, I, I got a big kick out of that. Those were really funny. Yeah, those were called the Force Unleashed. You call them the Force Unleashed. Awakens. You're right. Yeah. Awakens. Yes, Force is, I was going to yeah. say, they borrowed the name of the movie from that? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> those were a blast, though. I would agree. Well, there was that whole, during the 90s, right, the, the dark days of being Star Wars fans where they had all the novels, the video games, this whole extended universe, which all was for naught now. Disney has decided it didn't happen. But I just remember how intense that was, like, for everybody. You're just like, whoa, I can't believe new adventures with the same characters new characters who yeah i mean we we had all put our kenner action figures in a box on the shelf and moved on to gi joe and masters of the universe and transformers never thinking that we would you know have another star wars film and then about 10 years after the you know the dark times uh, that timothy zahn novel came out uh heir to the empire Oh, yeah. And suddenly there were new adventures and or they even started talk of doing the special editions in the prequels. And that's what got a lot of people back into Star Wars and really, you know, it took off again, which was really fun. Yeah, I've ever seen those at Barnes and Noble and always being like, wow, that's pretty amazing. But I look back at the merchandise for me, you know, the actual first time I got to see a live action Star Wars adventure was in uh, 1985. It was a Thanksgiving broadcast oh. of the Battle for Endor, yes. <laughs> the second yes. Ewok film, the sequel yeah. to the first one, which those should not be watched. Star Wars. Uh, well, know. at the time, <laughs> that's how they were promoted, man. But you're right. 
<laughs> I think I saw the second one. I saw Battle for Endor more times than I've seen Star Wars. Yeah. Well, <laughs> did you record it? Is that why? Like, I had it on oh, yeah. VHS. Oh, I totally yeah. had it on VHS, and we had the first one, but only, like, 70% of it, because we pushed record 30 minutes in. So. Right. Well, that was a giant television event. Oh, my goodness. It really was. And I picked up the official VHS release from 1990 a couple of years back. So I, I have it. I cherish it. But what was interesting is at that time, they also were releasing an Ewoks cartoon, the Droids animated series. You know, mm -hmm. so that was like all happening around me before I saw the movies. And so the Ewoks really were my entry point to Star Wars. And I know they get a bad rap. And I honestly so <laughs> cannot believe that there is zero reference in all of the films that have come since that there is no Ewok reference at all. Like even a passing joke. And I, it cracks me up. Like, I'm just like, I can't believe that people are that upset about it. But for me, like, the only Star Wars figure I really asked for, Star Wars toy and figures, was the Ewok Village, like you mentioned, Garen. And yeah. that thing, I played with that for hours and hours and hours. And I eventually, around 1988, at a garage sale... Ended up getting a bunch of Star Wars figures that somebody's mom was selling, you know. And uh, I had a, a whole collection of them. And, you know, I had the AT-AT. I had the Rancor. I had all this stuff. And there was a kid down the street from me who literally broke into my house for this heist. And he stole <laughs> my Star Wars figures. And I knew it was him because he was the only kid I had shown when I got locked out of my house once how to climb in a window. And so I was like, he stole my toys. My mom was like, what? I was like, he's the only one. And so we went to his house and talked to his mom. You know, she came to the door. And I'm like, yeah, he took my Star Wars toys. She's like, oh, those? No, no, no. He has a friend who's in the hospital, and he gave them to him. And I was like, <laughs> um. And so I said, I, well, I, I can show you it's mine. Can you go get the Rancor? It's the big brown monster. And I had dropped one of my mom's golden necklaces in there. And it got stuck. It got latched on something on the inside so I could never pull it out. So she handed me the Rancor. I turned it upside down and this necklace falls out. And she's like, silent. She's like, yeah, but their friend really wanted them to have these toys. Goodbye. And she shut the door. And we're like, Ouch. whoa. So I never got any of my Star Wars figures back. <laughs> they were gone that day. And it was so sad. My Ewok village, everything. I have an extra Ewok village. I'll, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll pass it on to you. My parents would get my brother and I the same thing. So we had two Ewok villages and all these figures. And we played for hours. I still have both of them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, but let's, let's talk a little bit about as the franchise has progressed as we've gotten the prequels as we've now gotten this new set of films going beyond how has that affected your star wars fandom has it rekindled it has it made it more exciting to you is it more of just a well that's not my star wars like where do you kind of fall in for that how about you jeff are you someone who's into the hype now that it's back in full force no pun intended <laughs> yeah well actually ha, 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 I, I was thinking about well a couple of different things. One, as we mentioned on our Star Trek episode, the fact that this is J.J. Abrams' strike one. He has ruined my Star Trek. I don't know why we would give him Star Wars, other than the fact that he says he actually likes Star Wars. So, okay. <laughs> and two, the fact that I did already see Force Awakens the first time when it was called A New Hope, uh, but this time it's two and a half hours long. And I, 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 okay. But it was the other thing that I was thinking about in watching one of the trailers 
for Last Jedi is the fact that I feel like what has happened to Star Wars, and it's not just because of Star Wars, it's also because of this blockbuster environment that we live in. I don't think, sadly, to the generation now, I don't think Star Wars is anything special anymore. I think Star Wars, when it's coming out this Christmas, it's just going to be another blockbuster that's coming out. It's another superhero movie. It's another Fast and the Furious. It's not like back in the, like, like we talked about back in the seventies and the eighties, Star Wars was its own thing. And it was, there was nothing else like it. But now there's lots of stuff that's like it. And it's sad. Like I don't think this generation views Star Wars like we do. Like it was something that was unique and special and all by itself. Now it's just one of many. I mean, people are probably going to lump it together, as sad as this is, with Justice League. Because Justice League was the other big movie that came out just a couple of weeks before. That's a bold statement, Jeff. I don't know. I think Star Wars still has a little bit that sets it apart. But not a whole lot, though. I mean, maybe a little. You're right. And the name still carries some weight. But I don't think we go into a Star Wars movie expecting the unexpected, expecting something we've never seen before, expecting a transportational uh, experience unlike any other movie. Well, I feel like that's true because there's such a nostalgia factor that people are expecting they don't want to do that. I feel like they did that with the prequels. George Lucas gave us something very different, and we didn't like it. So now they're going back and they're saying, let's redo what they did and give it the same flavor, you know? Well, I feel like it was different than itself, but I don't think it was different than everything else out there. It's just sci-fi is a big thing now, and it's not just Buck Rogers and the cheesy, like, laser guns. It's the same stuff. But, Garrett, has your cynicism grown, or have you experienced <laughs> it in a different way? It's funny. Somebody asked me this the other day, and I and I said, it's kind of like with parents when you have an ugly baby. You know, you recognize that it's not as cute as the other kids, but you still love it because it's yours. You know, I, just, <laughs> I feel the same way about Star Wars. I recognize when a Star Wars movie comes out and it maybe isn't as good or isn't as good as the original trilogy, but I, I'm still just loving it because it's Star Wars. So it, certainly the new movies for me, I, I think it's it's just fun. It's exciting. I want to go to the movies and have fun watching a Star Wars film. We can debate about the prequels and the original. The real, original trilogy will always be the best to me. Um, I think that J.J. Abrams tried a little too hard to hit on the nostalgia factor and try to, to copy so you feel like you're getting a sequel, but you're also getting a – I mean, it, I feel like it was too much crammed into one movie, but I think Lucasfilm was trying to play it safe to really launch it again because they made this $4 billion investment, wow. and that was what was kicking it off. So I'm hoping they take, a, take some risks with The Last Jedi. Um, I, I hope that The Last Jedi isn't a, a, a redo of Empire Strikes Back. I want, I want <laughs> well, and obviously the exciting thing, right, the real pull of The Last Jedi is the Porgs. No, I'm just kidding. It's the Porgs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is the return of Luke Skywalker, for real this time, not just a bearded man staring at us. Right, um, yeah. He actually delivers a line, yeah. Now, tell me, Garrett, we talked about this. We hit on it. You went to Celebration last year, and you had a Mark Hamill experience that was very special. Can you share that story with us? (laughs) So, you know, they have all of these guys. You've got Mark, you've got Carrie, you've got the Emperor and Lando, and everybody is there. 
And, uh, you know, really you're supposed to get in line and pay 50 bucks or 100 bucks and go get a picture with them or, or go get their autograph and that kind of thing. But you can kind of walk around and see who's there and it's kind of fun. So I had my little point and click camera and I, I kind of acted like I was getting in line so I could get a little bit closer and I was trying to just get some little pictures of each one of them. Well, all of them have this little sign behind them at, behind their table that says, you know, please no photography or something like that. And uh, so I was trying to sneak a picture. So I'm doing that and I'm looking in the little viewfinder on the camera and I realized that I wasn't even looking at my, Mark directly. I was just looking at my camera, look at Mark. And he said, he, he yells out loud, Hey, you. <laughs> and I realized he's talking to me. He says, Hey, you take a picture. And then he starts posing for me, different poses. So he poses one with his fingers pointed at me. He poses another with his fingers up to his face, making a funny face. And so he did two or three different poses. And it caught me so off guard because I felt like I got caught doing something I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> I've got all these pictures of Mark, but they're all blurry because, Aww. you know, I was frantically trying to hit, you know. Um, and everyone was cracking up and everyone else was taking pictures. And he's just a cool guy. I mean, he's just he's a Star Wars fan himself. So every time you hear him do an interview, he almost always says, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the fans. So I, he really puts himself out there for the fans. He's a cool guy. So I just read somewhere on, on Star Wars trivia, because that's the only thing. We, that's what I was thinking. We've never actually done a Star Wars podcast before, or at least uh -uh. you know, sequel. So much to talk about. That yeah. apparently to this day, the one scene that still Mark Hamill still hates from Star Wars is that opening scene in Empire Strikes Back when he gets captured by the Wampa, which yeah. you know, they just pretty much added to justify the scars on his face. Um, right. But apparently he said he filmed that, believing that he was going to wave his lightsaber to frighten the animal away. And instead, when they showed the final cut and he slices the arm off, he said Luke would never do that. And he's, like, ticked off about that, that he said, like, Luke wouldn't butcher a harmless animal who just wanted to eat. Like, that was not very light side of him. So I thought that was interesting that that still bothers him after all these years. Yeah, I had heard that recently, too. That is kind of funny. So I'm excited yeah. to see what, uh, what they do in the, the Last Jedi with him. I actually myself had a run-in with a member of the Star Wars universe, and I should mention that, uh, again, it goes back to my love of the Ewoks, I guess, further cemented. But <laughs> ba back in the day, um, I was uh, I, I did acting when I was a kid, and I was in this play that was at a mall. It was, it was a theater, a kid children's theater that had a space at a mall next to, you know, Tasty Freeze or whatever. And um, so, but they had just opened up a sci-fi memorabilia store and i was just so excited so like on my breaks i would go and i would like peruse the store and check it out and then i see this sign that says warwick davis today no way. and oh. i was like what so so of course I, I did my show and then i got out of costume as quick as i could and i went over there and there he was he was just at the store like warwick davis willow Wicket, he's there. <laughs> Leprechaun, yeah. to a lesser extent. Yeah. Um, and anyway, it, it was so cool to see him there. And I, I was, it was just a moment where he was just very nice and friendly. And um, they, I, the funniest thing to me, though, was that 
his wife was there with him and like the guy at the store like had one of his employees he's like yes here's a couple dollars can you please take mrs warwick down to get her her nails done at the salon you know like <laughs> we're really gonna treat her while mr warwick is here but i just thought it was funny that she was mrs warwick mrs not, warwick you know, davis you know <laughs> but anyway you were the first fan that walked up to him and said i loved you in caravan of courage that you exactly. are <laughs> <laughs> oh, but jeff did you have a it was right after Phantom Menace came out. So the Star Wars universe wasn't quite as dominant. It was still a Star Trek. Like the convention circuit had always been a Star Trek thing. Mm. And that Star Wars really started to gain momentum with the, the prequels, I feel. So at one point they were doing right after Phantom Menace, they wanted to do a Star Wars one, but they were a little bit, I think they were a little nervous that they wouldn't get enough of a following. So they ended up doing kind of a combined sci-fi convention. It always used to be, back when Justin and I used to go to Star Trek conventions, it always used to be that you could just kind of stand in line all day long and people would sign autographs. and But then they would kind of complain that people would just stand in line all day and they didn't actually get to hear people speak so then they shifted it so that you had to pay like 50 bucks for an autograph i'm like good lord well who wants to do that but they took everybody that nobody really wanted an autograph of and they put them in this side room just kind of like selling individual photos of themselves and so you could just walk right up to their table and just talk to them so you had for example like one of my uh sarah glofton that played jake cisco on deep space nine he had a table uh, Admiral Piet from uh, Empire Strikes Back, he had a table. Nice. Uh, the guy that pl- that was the stuntman that played Sauron in Lord of the Rings, he had a table. So he's a stuntman. <laughs> he never said anything. And then my favorite one, though, was Peter Mayhew, Chewbacca himself, had a table. So we got to go up. And the coolest wow. thing was we got to spend maybe – 10, 15 minutes just talking with Peter Mayhew, who, by the way, is one of the strangest human beings I have ever met. One, he's like seven feet tall, and two, he has normal-sized hand, but giant-sized fingers. It looks like spiders on his hands, and he, he always talks with his fingers. He's got that long, wavy hair, and... I think we asked what everybody asked him, like, did you actually make the Chewbacca noise? Which the answer is no, it was a black bear or something like that. He gave yeah. us like a seven minute answer to that question. We're like, well, you know, I would make noises. <laughs> the noises that I would make were very different noises, but then they dubbed in. And so like, ultimately that wasn't. And then, then, but later on, I mean, they did tell me that I was making these noises. So that's the closest <laughs> I got. Admiral Piet was a very, uh, which by the way, I didn't, but that was my second choice for doing an expanded universe is the story of Admiral Piet. <laughs> but our question was, why, why does everybody except for Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford, why does everybody else have British accents? Well, well, we filmed it in England, so that's where all the extras. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, nice to meet you. So, so well, as we as we get ready to, to jump into the pitches here, you know, I'll, I'll just come back around and say, you know, I never really answered how I feel about the the current generation yeah. of Star Wars. And I would just say that I I think it's fun. I think it is a little overexposed. So to Jeff's point, it does feel a little less special. However, I do think each of the films has some moment that is interesting. Like, I used to think that Revenge of the Sith was my favorite of the prequels, but I actually enjoy 
the sweet fantasy element of the Phantom Menace the most now. Uh, you know, Attack of the Clothes I could do without. I don't need any part of that. Um, but uh, but it, that, like The Force Awakens, yes, it's a blend of old and new, but there's enough new characters in there that are very interesting to me. And even, like, I got chills when Rey is battling Kylo Ren in the forest at the climax of the film, and she pulls up that lightsaber and she's ready to go. Like, that was an awesome moment for me. So I think they still do it. There's still that essence there that you can, you can latch on to. Now, the other thing that they're doing, right, and the reason we're here tonight is that Disney's plan is basically to give you a Star Wars film every year. So they're going to give you spinoff films. And we already got Rogue One, which was a very interesting experiment. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to do a movie where everybody dies so that you can't possibly <laughs> tell another story with them. Oh, <laughs> no matter how much you go, like them. Uh, yeah. We miss you. And we're getting this, the solo uh, Han Solo movie coming up, the totally reworked by I Ron Howard. Crook, yeah. Don't <laughs> screw it up. Please don't screw it up. But that seems to be kind of the way to go, right? It's like, yes, maybe if they're just going to rehash the continuing saga is going to be 50-50. But if you can get something new or a side character gets their own movie, just like, you know, Attack of the Clones, that's about the only thing you cared about, right? Yoda with a lightsaber and mm. Boba Fett. Django Fett, you know, origin of Boba Fett. It's like, those are the only things you wanted to see there. So now the question is, where would we expand the universe out? What do we want to see as fans? And what can we, uh, you know, pass along to the folks at Disney and see what they can put together to make us happy? Because just go obscure at this point, guys. Give us something. You know, there's been years and years, not only of, you know, the official stuff that, you know, is no longer canon, but there was also a lot of fan fiction. Even my sister-in-law, she's actually a very successful author in her own right now, but she started out doing Star Wars fan fiction, mm. and she was the head of the Imperial Star Wars fan club in the 90s. It actually ended up on the David Letterman program wow. uh, because they, they were trying to make fun of Star Wars fans, and she, like, shut him down. She's like, no, Dave. <laughs> she was too cool for him. But anyway, so, like, but there's... That, that's just a whole world that's already been there, and people are ravenous for, you know, that little guy. Yeah, yeah, that little guy off in the corner. You can barely see him. He's blurry. He's got a story. Let's tell it, you know. Did you guys hear that they greenlit a trilogy for Ryan Johnson to do whatever he wants? Obviously, director of The Last Jedi. And they said that, you know, he's going to just pick characters that nobody's ever heard of before but just do it in the Star Wars universe and just, you know, just go for it. Do your own trilogy. They liked it that much. Yeah, I get. I guess, you know, Disney's really high on Ryan Johnson well, right now. So, so but episode nine that is J.J. Abrams now, right? But it was Trevorrow, right? Trevorrow, Trevorrow yeah, it was. And they dropped okay. him, okay. I, which I think is so interesting. They're, like, they keep doing that, right? The Han Solo movie, they did that. That one, they did that. Like, it's like, we bring someone on, they're going to give it a fresh new perspective. No, you're out. <laughs> Don't do that. We're going with a, a trusted name. It's so interesting. I think to me, at the end of the day, it, it, they end up being Kathleen Kennedy's movies, you know? Like, she, if somebody sits there and wants to argue with Kathleen, then it's like, okay, you're out. Uh, Ron Howard, uh, do you want to do what I said? <laughs> Yeah. You know, so I think I think uh, Johnson knows enough to kind of follow her lead. But I think the most logical place really to go for a trilogy is to go back and explain, 
you know, where the Jedi came from in the first place. Who was the first person oh, yeah. to develop a lightsaber and yeah. and start the Jedi Order? And then who was the first Sith? And I think you've got a whole trilogy or sets of trilogies set, you know, in the distant past. That would be great, actually, yeah. Because then you're not tied to any character you've ever seen on screen before. Just the idea of the Jedi and the Sith and lightsabers. But you can do whatever you want. You know, you still have the Force. You still have the universe. But, uh you know, you don't have to pay homage to anyone. And thing. you have Yoda. And, yeah. <laughs> Always Yoda. And For 800 years. Isn't, you know, there's the other one called Yiddle? The other of Yoda's. The female. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like Yaddle. Like Yiddle or Yaddle. Or or... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they were talking about doing a, and I think they're actually really considering doing a Yoda spinoff in the future. And that to me sounds like a disaster. Yeah, well, because like up till now he doesn't even have a race, right? Didn't they? They've never even defined even it, what yeah. Yoda is. Yeah, exactly, he's yeah, still a mystery. Right. Yeah, wow. so it's strange that they would decide to finally reveal it because it's probably yeah going to be ridiculous. It's kind of like why they didn't do a, a an ET sequel on ET's Homeworld. We had to wait for the the ride, I guess. Right. <laughs> Universal yeah. Studios. It's kind of like I don't know if I want to see a whole bunch of ETs and really be on board for that. So I, I think the Star Wars movies that are on the docket now are, of course, the Han Solo film. And I'm sure if the Han Solo film is well received, they'll probably just do another. They'll probably do a trilogy there. Yeah, that'd be my. Um, idea. Which, which it, it just sounded like they they had. It was going to be very funny. Like it was going to be really wacky and fun because of who they had directing it. Oh yeah, totally. And plus they had Donald Glover and whoever else. So I just with Ron Howard in there, it sounds like it's going to be a real boring movie, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean obviously he's an Academy Award winning, pretty terrific director, and you know he did Willow, so uh, yeah. <laughs> Willow was hilarious. Oh, I guess Willow was pretty idiot. funny though. Yeah, Mad <laughs> Mad <Mad-matic>, again. <laughs> So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But, um, yeah, so I think the movies that are greenlit now are um, a Obi-Wan movie. This is what I've read most recently, which would make sense to do something um, pre, pre A New Hope, post Ep 3. With um, Ewan McGregor coming back? I, is there any mention I, of that? There has been a lot of talk of that. I don't know if it's confirmed. but He was uh, the best part of the prequels. Oh, so totally. I, I mean, I think yeah. that would just be perfect and awesome. There's there's a great story to be told there. And then uh, they have greenlit a, a FET movie, whether, the, whether that involves the other bounty hunters or not, I don't know. And then uh, a Yoda movie, and that makes me just nervous as all get out. But uh, So, Garrett, I'm very curious to hear... For you, you know, the consummate Star Wars fan, who grabbed your attention? What is the film that you wanted to see? <laughs> All right. Should I just head right into my pitch? Go for it. Okay. So we start out in a star field like uh, most Star Wars films do. And then suddenly pop, you see a ship emerge. And it is none other than Slave One, which I'm sure you guys know it's Boba Fett's ship, right? I just talk about Star Wars like everybody just should. I assume everyone knows. (laughs) Say Slave One, you're like, yeah, oh, yeah, of course. course. Boba Fett's ship, right? Then another ship emerges from hyperspace and another. And so pretty soon you've got three or four ships pop, pop, pop that all. And then the camera pans over and you're looking at the Super Star Destroyer, which is Vader's ship in Empire Strikes Back. It cuts to a scene of Darth Vader. and He's on the bridge of the ship and he's pacing back and forth. And you've got a close-up of his black boots pacing by various feet claws droids feet robes boots 
and you realize that he's walking back and forth in front of the group of bounty hunters from Empire Strikes Back. Again, this is where I just assume everybody knows who these characters are, but in Empire Strikes Back, you see from left to right, it's Dengar, IG-88, Boba Fett, Bosk, Forlom, and Zuckus. All right, then it does kind of a little flashback where Admiral Piet, he's down below, and he, yeah, Piet makes a, a, a cameo for you. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, uh, he says, Bounty hunters, we don't need their scum. That line straight out of the Empire Strikes Back. And then Darth Vader delivers his line from Empire Strikes Back. There will be a substantial reward for the one who finds the Millennium Falcon. You are free to use any methods necessary, but I want them alive. Then we kind of switch to the point of view of Vader's helmet display. So he's walking by each of the bounty hunters, and as he walks by and looks at each one, he kind of pronounces their name. And so he you know, walks by Dengar, IG-88. And with each one, when he pronounces their name, he has a helmet display. It pops up, you know, kind of their statistics, and then it kicks into a little flashback for each one. Zuckus, who he is the one who is on the very end, he kind of looks like a bug and then he's got this robe on he's got a, a gas mask and kind of a, a backpack on okay so the flashback is duck as he's walking up to a nightclub carrying this big gun in the city he walks up there's two hammerheads that are bouncers at the door and they say to him no weapons he reaches out and sticks something to each of their chests and immediately gas is emitted if the hammerheads they slump to the ground then he walks into the double doors and there's aliens of different species kind of like the cantina they turn around and look and as they look up at him he takes his gun and he shoots gas canisters throughout the whole cantina and within seconds everyone in the entire cantina is knocked out and then he casually walks down the steps over all of these bodies and picks out the one snaggletooth that is his bounty grabs him by the foot and drags him out the door and then we go to the next one is boss wait wait i have to stop you was it blue snaggletooth was it which which snaggletooth yeah, you know I, I think throwing in a blue snag would make a lot of the collectors <laughs> happy obviously yeah i almost i almost said it was a blue snag but i thought that might be too obscure of a reference for some of the audience but uh <laughs> Not if they're listening to this podcast. If they found us, they know. For those of you not in the know, when Ken released the action figures in the Sears Cantina playset, they had this snaggletooth, and it was blue and tall with kind of go-go boots. And later on, when they the movie came out, they realized that snaggletooth was actually red and, and had short legs. So you can get a blue snag but it was only released in that one set. Anyways, all right, so then it comes back to Vader, and then he he takes another step, and it's Bosk. And Bosk is the one that kind of looks like a lizard. So then he flashes back, and, and what you see is he's flashing back to each one of them acquiring a bounty, so you kind of know the bounty hunters, what they're about. So Bosk has always been known, his species has been known for being Wookiee hunters. And so there's a flashback where he's on a jungle planet, he's stalking through the vines on a Wookiee hunt, and he sees on his wrist display that there's a trap that's been sprung. So he goes walking over there, and there's a creature in a net. And so when he goes and pulls the net off, he finds that it's a weird, dark-furred creature, but it's not the Wookiee. And then suddenly a large black form rises behind him, knocks him to the ground. His gun falls to the ground, and it's this massive black-haired Wookiee that uh, they've been hunting. Bosk and the Trandosians They've been known to capture Wookiees and then release them into the jungle just to go hunting them. Anyway, so he'd been hunting this Wookiee, and suddenly the, the Wookiees hunting him. A fight ensues. There's a lot of grappling and hand-to-hand -hand combat, throwing, swiping, slashing. Finally, the Wookiee grabs Bosk by both arms, and he steps on one of his feet, and then he pulls down hard on both of his arms as if he's pulling his arms out of his sockets. 
you've heard that Wookiees do that, right? <laughs> and you, you hear his arms pop, and then surprise, the Wookiee kind of lets his guard down a little bit, and Bosk headbutts him and totally knocks him out cold. And then you see Boss kind of rotate his shoulders, and you hear him pop back into place. And then he walks over, grabs his gun, shoots the Wookiee, and a net hits him and wraps around him. And then he walks off with his prey. All right, so then the next one is IG-88, who is the tall assassin droid who kind of has a cylinder for a head. And if you've ever seen him on, like, Star Wars Clone Wars cartoons, they're very agile, surprisingly. So his takes place on Coruscant, where there's a young couple walking out of an opera house. They get in this two-seater ship. The man looks like he's maybe a Republic officer once he's inside the vehicle the canopy closes and suddenly a metal hand breaks straight down into the uh, the cockpit pulls the driver out by the neck and he just starts walking away with him the man pulls out a blaster and ig88 with his other hand crushes it the man tries to kick and struggle and then uh, ig88 shocks him with uh, electricity from his other arm the female passenger starts screaming that's in the ship and ig88's arm turns around and shoots her in the chest and then he just walks off and jumps off the end of the landing platform and just disappears into the night so then he takes a step and, and then you see dengar and dengar is the one who has kind of a, a wrap around his head uh, he's got brown armor, and then it looks like almost like this bandage that's wrapped around his head. In the Clone Wars, he was introduced as speaking with an English accent. He's kind of a talker. So his little introduction is there's this rich alien that's kicking back on the deck of like a space yacht. It's it's you know floating over a lake. And Dengar, he drives this kind of big clunker cargo ship, and he simply pulls up underneath this yacht opens his cargo hold that's larger than this entire space yacht, and then he just pulls up, slamming the yacht into his cargo hold, closes it real quick, and then jumps to light speed. So that's how he got his bounty. Um, and then the last one is 4LOM, or 4LOM, capital L, capital O, capital M. <laughs> and he's kind of a silver-gray protocol droid. This young girl in robes, she's running through a crowd. Something's chasing her. She runs across the street. She hood slides across the land speeder and down an alley, around a corner, and then she's at a dead end. Forlong comes around the corner. He he looks unarmed, and she pulls out a lightsaber, and you realize that she is a Padawan. And she kind of spins the lightsaber around her body and then makes a Jedi pose and yells, surrender. And in response, Forlong cocks his head to the side, kind of looks at her, and then out of each of his fingers shoots a poison dart, and they're each fired at the same time, so there's no way for her to really with her lightsaber, deflect all of them. And uh, so she gets stuck with a poison dart. And I, I imagine this playing kind of like the scene on Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the guy pulls the sword out and he's swinging it around his body and Harrison Ford just shoots him. <laughs> it's kind of like that. She, uh, you know, she pulls out her lightsaber and she's waving it around and then he just lifts his hand and just shoots her. She falls to the ground and then they walk off. So now that they've all been introduced, then he goes to Boba Fett and if you'll remember in the movie, he puts his finger in Boba Fett's face and he says, no disintegrations. Uh, Vader says that to Boba Fett. And so Boba Fett's introduction is just a kind of montage of five or six different times where he either killed or disintegrated somebody before they <laughs> their bounty. So one of them falls in lava, one of them gets shot, one of them gets blown up. Then the last one is Fett, who's just walking up to a Vader in his little you know throne room. And Vader asks, where is he? And Fett throws an arm, just some random alien arm at Vader's feet. And he says, here you go. So that's how the movie starts. So the idea for the film is that Boba Fett has to get Han Solo and Carbonite, right? So we have a little recap where Fett goes to Cloud City. Han is put in Carbonite. Leia chases them out to 
the landing platform, Slave 1 takes off, and the movie takes place in the time that it took Fett to get from Cloud City to Jabba's Palace on Tatooine. And my picture for it was kind of this slick action film a la Mad Max Fury Road in space, where the whole movie is just in motion as he's trying to get Han to Jabba's Palace, but this whole time he's in carbonite. So you almost feel like Harrison Ford is in the movie, but it's just Harrison Ford frozen in his carbonite. (laughs) Right. So just to kind of skim through the rest of this here, right away there's a ship coming up behind him that's firing on him. And so Boba Fett goes to jump to light speed, and he realizes that Lando had Lobot disable his hyperdrive. So now he can't jump to light speed. And so he's getting hit by lasers. And then over his um, his calm, he hears Dengar say, you know, hey, old friend, looks like you can use a lift. And uh, Boba Fett said, no way, I'm, you know, I'm not going with you. And, and Dengar says, you're not going anywhere on your own. I'll take you to a repair station, but you'll have to split the bounty with me 50-50. And so Fett, you know, he's saying, forget you. But just then IG-88 pulls in. He starts shooting on Boba Fett, too, and as his shield starts going down and he realizes that he you know, can't jump to light speed, he takes Dengar's offer and lands his ship in the back of Gar's giant kind of junky ship. And so in this movie, I envision that he never even takes his helmet off. He would keep uh, Boba Fett kind of mysterious. Anyways, they arrive at a repair station. Bosk is there on the other side of the door, and there's a fight that ensues. I think most Star Wars fans will agree that Boba Fett never had an opportunity to show how awesome he was because he kind of gets chumped in Return of the Jedi. (laughs) Han turns around real quick and hits him with a stick, and that makes his rocket fire, and he falls into the Tzolak pit, where he doesn't actually die. We all know he crawled out later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, didn't Lucas make up some random, where he was trying to either tell a joke or just trying to justify the famous uh, head bump with the the stormtrooper? And then he tried to make it seem like, because they're all clones of Django Fett anyway, and they're like, well, Django is somewhat clumsy. It's like, what? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah I, I heard that too. But you, ne- you never had an opportunity to see him use all of his gadgets effectively. And so these fights are kind of set up for Fett to be able to use all of these things. So at one point he runs over to get Han back. Of course, Har- Han is in carbonite. And one of the gags is that he lifts the car- carbonite up. And if you guys will remember, the carbonite is on a floating lift. And so he lifts it up. And as uh, Bosk is firing at him, he uses... Han is a shield, so there's all these <laughs> off of Han's face, and eventually Forlom and Zuckus they walk in, and Forlom shoots darts at everybody, and immediately Bosk and uh, Dengar they get hit with the dart and they start stumbling and falling over. But Fett, when he gets hit with the dart, he pulls it out and looks at it, and he has that sensor scope on the top of his helmet that we've all seen. It comes down over his eye, and it analyzes the dart, and immediately his wrist control gadget dispenses the antidote. So Fett is still good to go. And so then he fires a wrist cable at Forlom, the same cable that you saw wrap around Luke before Luke deflected that blast in Return of the Jedi. Um, but this time Fett pushes a button, and it slices right through. Whoa. And then Zuckus takes off on a speeder bike with the block of carbonite, trailing behind him kind of like a trailer and so fed jumps on a speeder chases zuckus and there's a speeder chase through the city. At one point, he jumps off of the speeder bike, and Fett chases him just with his rocket pack. So you get to see the rocket pack get shown off. 
and then uh, it, he's able to cause Zuckus to crash as he grabs the carbonite block and, and takes back off and returns to his ship. When he gets back to his ship, he sees Dengar and Bosk. They're still out. He throws them in a closet, and he takes off to go to Tatooine. Uh, as he's flying out of that spaceport, again, IG-88 engages him. And so Fett, thinking fast, ejects Han, the carbonite block, out of his ship, and it starts tumbling through space. So, you know, this, again, is another gag where here, here's Han. He's flying through space. And so IG-88 locks onto it with his tractor beam, therefore freeing up Fett, who was previously in his tractor beam. And then he comes around, blows up IG-88, and is able to magnetize and retrieve Han again. And then he's off on his way. And, and then you see far away some red lights flicker as IG-88 as he as he wakes up in another body and you just get the sense that he's you know got all of these IG-88 bodies. Um, so the last act is Boba Fett getting to Jabba's palace. So he lands on Tatooine, kind of in that valley that's outside of Jabba's palace, and he rents a dewback, one of those big lizards that you see the stormtroopers riding in A New Hope, and he attaches the carbonite block to the back of that in a case, and he starts approaching the, the palace. And as he does that, Dengar and Bosk, they're there suddenly. They all knew he, he was going to Tatooine, and so they try to kind of ambush him. And, and then at the same time, IG-88 shows up, and he's not only – it's not just one IG-88, but he's got about two dozen assassin droids that all look like him. And this big fight ensues outside of Jabba's palace. And so you have an opportunity for all these aliens that you saw in Jabba's palace to come running out and join the fight. And I've always wanted to see all of these guys in action, the, the, the yak face and, and spit head, you know, all these different characters. The, the bounty hunter that Leia dresses up like, uh, in Return of the Jedi Bush, they all come out and they join the fight. So there's this big fight. Jabba comes out. He's watching the whole thing. At one point, the Millennium Falcon pulls in and Chewie fires on Fett. He's trying to prevent Fett from being able to deliver, uh, Han to, uh, Jabba. But, with the help of all of these other bounty hunters in Jabba's palace, Boba Fett's able to get his due back to bust through the doors. He fires one last beautiful rocket that blows up IG-88. And the last scene is of Boba Fett standing in front of Jabba, opening up the crate so he can see that he finally has Han and Carbonite. And Dengar and Bosk are there. And little fun fact, if you look really closely, you see both Dengar and Bosk in Jabba's palace in the background, so you know that they made it. And so Jabba laughs loudly, salacious crumb, echoes Jabba's laugh, and then the original Max Rebo band starts to play a song. The end. Yes, thank yeah. you. Boba Fett triumphant. Uh, I got to say, I was... I was maybe a missed opportunity, or maybe you saved your picture. But when he launched out Han and Carbonite into space, I thought that Boba Fett was going to jump out of his ship and surf the Carbonite oh. block <laughs> through space, kind of a silver surfer, but with yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I wasn't sure there was enough little story beats in there. Um, you know, at one point I toyed around with space pirates or, you know, the entire Rebel Alliance trying to stop them at Tatooine. But uh, anyways, I kept it focused on, you know, these bounty hunters. I wanted more time with him with uh, Dengar, but, you know, I'll leave that to the story group. Yeah, well, it feels like it's a mad, 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 mad world or rat race, you know, but yeah, with totally. bounty hunters. I liked your description comparing it to Mad Max because that definitely makes it where the story te- the action is the storytelling. Like that really right, makes yeah. a lot of sense. Very cool, Jeff. What do you got? 
Okay, so let's see. So mine, can you can we call it a Star Wars story? Would that be too little, too much, too whatever? I don't know, but I that was the only. I didn't but, tell you my title is Vader's oh. Bounty. There, I have to put the nice, title. There you go. I was thinking something to do with yeah, oh, the bounty. Vader's Bounty here. Yeah, because I feel like that was Rogue One's subtitle, wasn't it? A Star Wars story. So we can't just call this a Star Wars story. But. Yeah, I I, I kind of hate that subtitle. I think yeah. it's easy. I just it I think you just call it Star Wars Rogue One. You know, I call it a right. Star Wars story. But exactly, because that's my title, and they took it without even knowing. <laughs> so uh, the movie opens with a star destroyer called Harbinger. Which is transporting dignitaries to a conference about the rebellion. This is, is it Y-A-B? How do they say it? But after the Battle of Yavin, A-Y, A-B-Y? There you go. So zero A-B-Y. So this is basically, I guess we'd figure that out in a couple of minutes. Because the commander gets word of the destruction of the Death Star. Uh, word travels around the ship and nobody really believes it because it was, you know, it was like the Titanic. It was unsinkable. It was unstoppable. No one's going to be, it's actually possible to destroy it. But then suddenly out of hyperspace comes a rebel attack force. I wanted it to be Rogue Squad, but I don't know if Rogue Squad existed yet. I think they came along later. So we'll just say that it's a rebel attack force is attacking the Harbringers. So space battle ensues, pew, 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 all that sort of stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> but the Imperials are losing and uh, the reactor is just about to, to blow up on the Star Destroyer, and so the captain orders abandoned ship. At some point in that intro, when the word's traveling around the ship and nobody believes that the, it could actually be destroyed, we meet this snooty dignitary that owns Arrow Filter and his assistant Will. And during the evacuation, the gas magnate takes the last seat on the evacuation pod and uh, maybe even something as cheesy as like he needs his materials to go and so either way his assistant will gets left behind because he needs more space for like the the boss is the one that specifically leaves him behind so anyway uh all the escape pods end up being launched and will can't find space on any of them so here he is on a star destroyer about to explode when the rebel landing party shows up, finding an abandoned Star Destroyer that's about to blow up, but they grab the last remaining survivor, Will, and take him back to Yavin 4, which is still their base at this time, although they're in the process of moving because obviously the Empire knows about them now. So anyway, back on Yavin 4, Will is kind of like shown around and he really gets to see kind of like what suffering the Empire has led to because the Rebellion is not just, you know, all of these fighters. There's also the refugees and there's the starving children and there's the injured and there's the blah, 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 blah. And really gets to that point where he starts to say, okay, what can I do to help? Uh, and so in meeting with I don't know, somebody, Mon Mothma or whoever it is, meets with somebody and they say, well, really what we need is we are desperately in need of supplies. All of our, you know, like we've got the ships that we've gotten. Who knows how they get their ships, but they have them. Um, but they all need gas to fly. And so it would be really great since you have these connections with your, you know, the company that you used to work for, Aerofilter, which is the biggest gas distributor out there, that could really be useful. So he agrees. He goes back to Aerofilter and kind of explains his disappearance while staring right at his boss and doesn't say that he was left behind. But clearly his boss, I mean, obviously his boss knows because, like, He's the one that did it. And we kind of get the feeling that he is holding this over his boss's head. So his boss, because of that, 
lets him back into the company and he ends up kind of working his way up as the assistant and everything like that. And then through, you know, various working undercover and doing all that sort of stuff like that, he's working undercover to get the rebels and supplies, but he's in this constant fear of discovery. But he, again, that he kind of has that card to play. And so whenever he gets in trouble, he kind of plays that, well, you know, you abandoned me there. You know, don't let, you know, you want me to tell everybody about that and blah, 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 blah. So at one point it's getting too hot. And so he figures out he, he can no longer manipulate his boss anymore. So the last thing is that he's got this deal with this this planet called Bespin, where there's the the leader there is this guy named Lando Calrissian, and he says if he can come up with a deal with Lando's help to be able to negotiate the exclusive rights with Bespin, that this will set up the rebellion permanently. They'll have it. This is the gas planet. This is what they do. That's what they're gonna do. So he goes there. Um, in order to negotiate that. However, kind of on the side, we see that his boss, who is still loyal to the Empire, ends up telling the Empire that that's what's going on. And so the Empire, not only do they send troops there, they in fact send Darth Vader there specifically to capture Wilro and to get this information out of him because they realize not only is he this key link to the Rebellion, but also he knows the people in the rebellion and everything like that. So anyway, Darth Vader arrives and all of these troops come out after to capture Wilro. So Wilro sneaks into the computer core, uh, grabs the central processing unit right at the same time as Lando is telling all of the people in Cloud City that they need to evacuate because the Empire is taking over. So Wilro rushes heroically taking this computer core through the streets or whatever you call it of cloud city, avoiding all of these, you know, Imperials and like <laughs> dodging everything. And finally, right at the end of the movie would be him sacrificing himself to destroy this computer core and saving the rebellion uh, all in one stroke. Wait, Jeff, <laughs> this computer core, is this the ice cream this maker is guy? This the ice cream man, <laughs> Will Hood, is really the hero of the entire rebellion. <laughs> oh, I knew there had to be a twist ending to this long, drawn-out story. <laughs> it felt like I was waiting for a punchline, and there it is. There you go, and that's the whole thing, too, is that so that we also find out that Vader wasn't actually there for Luke Skywalker. No, he was there to capture Wilro Hood, and he's like, oh, Luke Skywalker is here, too. Oh, double bonus. And for those who don't know, if you're watching Empire Strikes Back while all the the residents of Bespin are running around, there's just this guy who's carrying this little ice, you know, homemade ice cream maker, and it just looks so odd and out of place. He's just running through the hallway and stops for a brief second, you know. And I would like to add, and then if you Google search Wilro Hood, it is fascinating what like because somehow somewhere along the lines they developed the name his name and his character and if you go to a star wars convention there are maybe more people dressed up like will row hood than almost anybody else they do <laughs> at celebration i know they do an annual running of the hoods where all, everybody the, yeah, I was gonna bring that up like Will Row Hood, yeah, totally. and they run. You can actually Google search how to make an accurate Will Row Hood costume. Oh yeah. <laughs> Kudos, Jeff. Jeez, Jeff that was hilarious. Eat his own movie. 
I liked how you started out with, well, the character's name is Will. You didn't want to give it away. And I was thinking, that's the lamest Star Wars name ever. And then, no, 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 it's Will Rowe. And then you, you, then you just go for it there at the end. Well played. All right. Well, my film is called A Star Wars Short Story, which uh, will become evident Ewoks. shortly. Ewoks. Yes. <laughs> Let's bring them back. Let's make Ewoks matter again. This is the third film in the Ewoks franchise. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and for those who don't know, the first two centered around mostly Wicket's friendship with a little girl named Sindel, or Sindel, however you want to pronounce it, this little blonde-haired Shirley Temple-looking girl. Critically acclaimed, made-for-TV movies. <laughs> Fifteen years after the Battle for Endor, Teak who was a little white kind of monkey-faced little fast-running creature. He had super speed. Teak and Wicket have made Sindel's family's star cruiser into a makeshift clubhouse. And we see that Wicket has become a little bossy. And Teak is still up to his mischievous ways. And they're not being very good friends to each other, as Wicket talks about missing Sindel and how Teak is always getting them into trouble. One day, while poking around, they find an extra energy cell that Sindel's father had buried nearby. They try to figure out where it fits and successfully activate the vehicle. On autopilot, the ship hones in on Sindel's locator bracelet and flies the furry pair off of Endor and into space. After the power cell <laughs> malfunctions, they crash land at an old junkyard on the far side of Tatooine, where they have to fend off a group of feisty Jawas but then make friends with the hooded creatures after bravely thwarting a kidnapping attempt by bounty hunter IG-88. Nice. All right. He's back. All right. So the Jawas reward Wicked and Teak with a new power cell, and they head off in pursuit of Sindel's signal. Meanwhile, IG-88 recovers and follows the little adventurers. As it turns out, there's a curious little Jawa named Teenie <laughs> who has stowed away on their tiny star cruiser, and he was the bounty hunter's target. So after continuing on their quest, Teak and Wicket discover Teenie and see that he is carrying an info card, or a stolen data tape, whatever you want to call it, around his neck, which he then hides in his robe. Seeing that Sindel signals nearby, the trio start fighting over who gets to fly the ship and land it, and in the scuffle, they accidentally crash in a Dagobah swamp. Here, IG-88 pursues them, requesting that they hand over the Jawa, which Teak and Wicket refuse. But they still won't work together to formulate a plan, each thinking they know the best way to defeat the droid themselves. Hijinks ensue as Teak can't use his super speed in the muddy, tree-filled terrain, and Wicket can't find the same supplies he would use in the forests of Endor to make weapons, so they appear to be doomed. But then... IG-88 is suddenly pulled into pieces by an invisible assailant and scattered throughout the swamp. They have been saved by Yoda, a Jedi Master oh. in hiding who invites them to his home. There, Yoda teaches them important lessons. Wicket learns about being a leader by trying other people's ideas, and Teak <laughs> learns the importance of being trustworthy. Yoda then reveals that TDU has stolen the activation code for a weapon that IG-88 was going to use to increase his prowess in the bounty hunting game, which is why he was after the little Jawa. All the while, IG-88 is slowly pulling himself back together, piece by piece. So Yoda helps the trio get their now battered star cruiser out of the swamp and sends them on their way. But shortly after leaving the Dagobah atmosphere, they come upon a Star Tours docking station. 
<laughs> Therein is Sindel's signal seems to be the strongest, and they crash land into it, destroying their craft. After running away from some angry mechanics, they meet up with a brand new pilot droid named Rex, who's preparing for his first flight. He confirms that he knows Sindel, and she actually left the bracelet in her locker. And he says she's been a friendly stewardess that's been helping him train and get ready for his flight. So Rex says he's heading to Endor, where Sindel headed on her last flight and invites them along. As they take off, it's clear that Rex is not a great pilot, though he does successfully navigate them through an asteroid field. Halfway through the flight, they are boarded by IG-88 who shakes the info card from TDU and inserts it into his weapon, deciding to test it on the three little creatures who have caused him so much trouble. By activating the weapon, a homing device is set off, and a nearby group of TIE fighter pilots are dispatched to break off from their battle with some rebel X-Wing pilots to recover the weapon, which it turns out that IG-88 stole from the Empire. While the three adventurers dodge the bounty hunter's attacks, Rex evades the incoming TIE fighters with the help of the Rebel Alliance, while Wicket and Teak work together to shoot IG-88 out of the cargo hold with the weapon in hand, where he is captured by the TIE fighters. Rex then gets the group to Endor, where they have a happy reunion with the now-adult Sindel, who spends the night with them in the Ewok village, singing and dancing. And <laughs> what a happy little fairy tale. It's true, but a couple of questions now. You said it takes place after the first two Ewok adventures. Didn't they yes. take place after Return of the Jedi? And so shouldn't Yoda be dead by now? Well, see, now that is the big contention. There's kind of a weird timeline with the Ewoks movies, because if you think about it, in Return of the Jedi, Wicket does not speak English. But in Battle for Endor, he speaks English. So the question <laughs> Wait, is... he does? Yeah. She, he talks, oh, Wicket, go whoosh. Oh, that's true. Oh, okay. uh, I forgot. friend. Yeah. So he has this little voice. So that that was always the thing. They're saying, well, it couldn't possibly take place after Jedi, so it had to be before. So these are these are kind of prequel tales. Uh, maybe you know, even before Rogue One. You know, this is just kind of after Revenge of the Sith and somewhere there that 15 year gap or whatever as Luke is growing. So yeah, that's that's where I placed it. Yeah, because that was my thought too. I was like, should Yoda be dead? No. Oh, this is why. <laughs> okay, okay. And so wait, because that was the other part when you were saying that Wicket and Teak were going to have an argument. I'm like, what is that argument going to sound like? Yum yum yum. And because Teak doesn't speak at all, does he? No, it's yeah. So it's one sided. It's Wicket is the one who's speaking, but Teak understands English because he lived with Wilford Brimley's Noah, so he speaks English. He just doesn't. Speak up, I guess. You didn't <laughs> does clarify. Uh, did, does Max sound like Pee Wee Herman too? <laughs> he has to be. You got to get Paul Rubens in there, <laughs> re reprising his role. Yep, Rex is gonna be just as you remember him. And it works, especially now with uh, with Disney. I mean, that they get now they get yeah. to push their own ride. For sure. <laughs> Although Max, you know, Rex isn't there anymore. Rex, yeah. Rex is now yeah in the junk heap. Oh, so sad. All right, it's time to vote. And it was 
uh, pretty exciting reveals here all around. So we'll see where we fall. Wait, what are Darren, we voting for now? I don't. What do we? Which one we want to? We want to move forward with. Which oh. one do you think is the most well, viable? So... Have you forgotten the format of the show, Jeff? Well, no, I got that, but it's just they're so. Uh, normally we're all on the same page, but I guess we're in the same universe. IG right. there and a couple That's of true. them. Yeah, you did get a couple of those. Vespin was in both of them. That was That's good. True. And I, I, I feel like the junior high teacher that tells the students i don't feel like you guys took this assignment very seriously <laughs> <laughs> but if i had to choose i i think i i think i would go with jeff's jeff's pitch um i think it's hilarious and it also kind of pokes fun at disney taking the most obscure star wars character ever and making a home movie about him because eventually we're going to run out of all of the characters <laughs> and that will be star wars in 20 years right <laughs> So I think that, I thought that was hilarious. Jeff but, wins. Okay, Jeff, how about you now? You've got to vote for yourself, but who are you going to give a vote to? Oh, gosh. As much as I love the Mad Max mentality, like, that really excites me. But, wow. I mean, with that, with my connection with the Ewok Adventures, I'm just going to have to go with Adams, I'm afraid. I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, I was not expecting that. I didn't even know you had the same connection I did, Jeff. So oh, yeah. My mom probably still has the VHSs, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, for me, it's going to be difficult because, again, with Jeff's, I love the concept. I love the idea, and the joke was nice. But I did not want to see that movie. I wanted to see the last two minutes of that movie. I did not want to see the rest of it about a gas magnate and his assistant. Yeah. So, um, so I, I looked at I looked at Garrett's and I was just like, yes, like that's what we were missing because you're thinking like, what what did really where did all the other bounty hunters go in Empire? What happened to them? How did Boba Fett and like you said they end up in Jabba's palace, but they just gave up? You know, all, there's all these ideas answered questions so i i really have to vote for garen because i i even just if we were doing a short film and we got just the backstories of everybody you know and, <laughs> and did it that way it'd be fun but then we get all the race to Jabba's palace so we run into a problem then because we have no jeremy to be a tiebreaker oh, <laughs> let's make them all garen. we have Yay! a vote for jeffrey we have a vote for, yeah so i guess it's just they're all on the docket i guess there's no uh, other well, way to look at it you, you know the the ewok uh the the ewok adventures that's almost its own separate thing you know that's true you know the debate is whether or not that would even be considered a star wars movie or an ewok movie so <laughs> yes you're right it is its own universe and i just <laughs> I guess I guess if if we could do something because I I I pretty much feel like in all honesty I think Garen's film has to has to win out if I was going to you know use my uh, role as host tonight <laughs> to make an executive decision um, but like you know and you had some great details in there my one question was I was wondering is there a way to bring in a new character because again for marketing purposes and everything else too it's kind of like well here's the new face in this bounty hunter story that maybe is not you know i don't think there's boba fett doesn't have time for a romance so that's not what's going on <laughs> although yeah. it'd be hilarious he never takes off the helmet but he's got a girlfriend you know yeah <laughs> she, that's she's always trying to trick him into taking off the helmet <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I was trying to figure out, like, is there, like, a new bounty hunter on the scene, maybe, that has tried to upstage him or something? Like, because they're all trying to win, but then, like, this other upstart comes in and maybe just comes and goes really quickly. But you could say, like, oh, you know, here's, you know, like, and again, that it would be somebody unassuming, like a Jawa bounty hunter or a <laughs> Ewok bounty hunter. You know what I'm saying? Or, like, or a tiny. blue snag. It could be a blue yeah. snag. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, I feel like... I feel like to make it work, though, you need – I mean, granted, using Mad Max as a template is maybe not the, the path that they would go, though, is where you have to have some sort of a buy-in. Like, each one of the, the bounty hunters needs needs to be a character. You know, you need to know who they are, and it's it's almost like you've got your favorites, and you got the one that you hope doesn't win, and you got all that sort of stuff like that. And so it's kind of like because you're already splitting that amongst, you know, what, six bounty hunters – so I feel like, yeah, dedicating as opposed to just kind of like, well, let's just throw a couple of shots here and a couple of shots here, doing that well, extra about, work with the, the back story, especially. Well, like oh. you said, yeah, like if it had like an emotional center to it, my thought was what if one of those bounty hunters had a history with Django Fett and he betrayed him at some point before his death? So Boba Fett knows this guy used to be his dad's partner or whatever and did something to him. So now, like, and that guy always, like, jabs him about it, too. And he's <laughs> proud that you're still just a kid. You're nothing. You know, like Bosk or whoever that you wouldn't know how old they are. You Remember know? that one time you saw your dad get his head chopped off? <laughs> <laughs> I got the video right here. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, you know, I'm open to I'm open to whatever, you know, throwing new characters in there. I kind of felt like, like, all of these bounty hunters we've seen pictures of them but they never became characters to us because they never said or did anything you know and so when i when i was thinking about like which one of them actually speaks english you've got dengar and actually bosk speaks english but dengar you know i think he could be kind of the the talker and if we could weave him more into the plot so it becomes a little more buddy cop, you know, where he's most of the expo- exposition and, and he's cracking the jokes and that kind of a thing. And, and Fett's his his partner in crime. Maybe that mm-hmm. would work a little bit better. But, yeah, I, I, I agree, though. I think there's this sense of that they all know each other and they have for years and years and years been rivals. So they're they're friends, but they also don't mind backstabbing each other. Yeah. And then at the end, you know, if 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 you if one double crosses one, then they forgive them because they know that they would just do the same thing to each other. So there's there is that kind of sense of like, you know, are we working together or, or can I sneak one on yet and get the bounty myself? And I guess the good news about, you know, Boba Fett, I mean, I guess we could stop and say, okay, who do we want to do his voice at this point? Are we going back to the original actor? Because he's older, but I'm sure he, because there was the guy that was in the costume, but who did the voice work? Do you know, Garen? Was it the same? Was it Jeremy Bullock or whatever that guy's name is? I actually think it was Jeremy Bullock, but I'm not positive. And then in the special editions, they redubbed it with um, with Django Fett's voice. So you yeah. know, I, I I'm I'm kind of one of those where you know, I I didn't like the origin story. I didn't I didn't like how the prequels I I call it. You know, it's like Muppet Babies. It's like Star Wars Babies. <laughs> each, each film had to have baby. Baby Darth Vader and Baby Boba Fett, and they were going to have Han on Kashyyyk in Episode Three, yeah. but they finally decided oh, wow. not to. So they were going to have Baby Han. I mean, it's it was just going to be ridiculous. So I, I mean, I almost 
pretend like uh, episode two didn't happen, so I don't have to believe that Boba Fett was ever this little snotty nose kid, you know. Um, but I think I think Boba Fett's one of those characters who who could be a persona. It's like the Batman. It doesn't have to be the little snotty kid. Someone else can take on the mantle of Boba Fett, and huh. you know there could be different Boba Fetts. It's it's just the the greatest bounty hunter in the galaxy, but you never know who's actually under the hood, you know. A sequel to your spinoff. I like that idea. Like the Dread Pirate Roberts. He just passes on his legacy. Well, right. and the yeah. fact that there are millions and millions of clones of him. So. It's <laughs> yeah. a good point. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, nubs. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, like, yeah, if we could just have a little bit of that emotional core, like you said, so you have the, the buddy cop angle with having a partner in Dengar, but then, like I said, if it could be Bosk that used to be his dad's partner betrayed him or something so that there there's a more emotional stakes for Boba Fett throughout it, yeah. I think that would help, too. Like, we know he's really just in it for the money, but then this element comes in, you know, yeah. and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I like so now he's really mad. Yeah, that sounds cool. All right. Well, I, I like it. Now, did you have any idea... I mean, do we want George Miller? Is this going to be George, George Miller's Star Wars film? <laughs> You know, I was I was throwing ideas around. The, the only one I really came up with was the uh, the Russo brothers that did Winter Soldier. They did Captain America, Winter Soldier, and I think did Civil War. But I think they did a fairly good job in those movies, taking together a pretty big cast of different characters that have different you know qualities and and uh, you know powers and intertwining those together so they each kind of get their moment in the spotlight. So and and they also have a good they have good comedic timing, but can bring the intensity if they need to. So that would be my pick. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I'm also wondering, I'm like, would Harrison Ford get residuals for being a carbonite <laughs> film? It's all about the merchandising. It'd be pretty awesome. I mean, I know you could buy a life-size one for your house, so it's already, you know. But all right, well, cool. I think that's uh, Vader's Bounty. Look for it. Summer 2021, whatever. <laughs> we'll get to work on it. Try to pull everybody together. But, yeah, I think that was a, a great pitch. So Whatever movie we make, we're going to work Will Row Hood in there. You know? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, if there if there is a shot of Bespin, there's a shot of the ice cream maker running through the hole. <laughs> He's got to be somewhere. And we'll, yes. we'll work an Ewok in there somewhere, too. <laughs> please, Ewok please. bounty hunter. Yeah, oh, I love it. Idea. He's got an eye patch, you know. He's got yeah. an eye patch. And he just kind of grumbles, jub, jub, jub. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, folks, thank you for listening. Garrett, thank you very much for joining us. We will be back for the new year. Like we said, our first episode of the new year, something special, talking about a third Tim Burton Batman film. What could you do with that? Well, we did plenty. So uh, stay tuned. And uh, we also got a lot more coming up for the new year. We're going to be doing a third Bill and Ted movie, which has been rumored for a long time, but we're going to try to jump in ahead of it. Some other uh, spacefaring films as well. Flash Gordon is on the docket, and Jeff has a special connection to that, but you'll have to wait and find out what it is. <laughs> so tell your friends. You know, check us out on Twitter because we will be posting some Star Wars pictures that will definitely show you Garen's action figure collection. It's a lot of fun. So until then, the Force will be with you always. All right. Anything better? You guys got a better ending line? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> yeah, those are all good. Fuzzball.
<laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 